Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today we have episode 16, and we're going to be interviewing Mouse W. How are you this morning, Mouse? I am excellent. Thank you so much. No, I just want to say thank you for taking the call early in the morning. It's an early Sunday we got going here, and I appreciate that. So let's, Oh, my pleasure. All right, let's dive right in. So let me uh, ask you, tell us a little bit about your childhood and you know anything you think might have been something that helped push you towards the life of addiction. Oh, well, let's see. Uh, I had an extremely traumatic childhood that both of my parents struggled with substance use, uh, with alcohol, and I uh, endured uh, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. Um, Yeah, I mean, pick a trauma. And I've either experienced it directly or have experienced with something similar. And even though I remember when I was eight years old, I made a promise with my best friend how we would never, ever, ever, ever drink when we got older. Yeah, when I was 25, I kind of fell into a pitcher of beer. So what kind of things did you witness that you say, you know, pick a trauma? Was there anything specific that stands out to you? Oh, yes. Um, There were... Like, I have uh, very clear memories of abuse from when I was younger, um, as early as uh, five and six years old. Like, one of my first memories is actually a beating from my father. Yeah. And then it was, I have done a lot of work since then. And, yeah, it's, uh, one second, let me stop resisting it. <laughs> Take your time. Oh. It was, um, yeah, like uh, I remember one, uh, one clear memory is actually being hoisted up uh, by one arm from my mother. And like, as we, like, I was, I don't remember how I was misbehaving, but I was like drug upstairs to the bedroom. And then my bed, was like a 180 from the doors you first walk in and she just kind of pulled me into the room and slung me into the wall by one arm over my bed and as soon as I landed laid into me with a wooden spoon and I was six yeah that could be pretty traumatic for a six-year-old yeah, and then also my father was a master at weaponized affection, and he was just, oh my God, he was so petty. I remember that they split up on December 31st, 1982, and then, <clears throat> pardon me, he uh, washed all of her clothes. He washed all of her clothes together and then left them soaking wet in the middle of the kitchen. 
real quick, maybe for the listeners that may not know, and I don't know, what is weaponized affection? Yes, that um, I was never inherently worthy of love and affection as I was. So both myself and my brother, it was always a constant struggle to like prove our worth and prove that we were not burdensome. So unless we were being good little boys and actively mm-hmm. doing something to make dad proud, affection was withheld. Understood. Yeah. Or, you know, trying to, there was no competing with the alcohol. Like once they got into drinking and they were committed to, quote, having a good time, my brother and I were burdens. And our needs became secondary to their desire to, you know, numb whatever pain they were going through. Both of my parents also had their own trauma and just, I mean, it was what it was. They were they were dealing with their demons in the best way that they knew how. And, and back then we didn't have the tools and resources that we have now. So right there you're saying that they tried their hardest. And I find this is something that I might do a lot. Do you feel that you're maybe making excuses for them? Oh, no, not at all. Because you don't, nah. you never deserve that no matter what they were going through. Oh, yeah, no, no. And also, um, I am a certified peer support specialist, substance use recovery coach, and mental health first aid responder now, in addition to being a, a men's health coach. That um, actually all of my trauma, my substance use, uh, like my first suicidal ideation was when I was 11. That was the first time I actually voiced it out loud. My intention was to swallow a bottle of aspirin. And then in 2018, I actually did overdose uh, on my antidepressants. And since then, I have been very intentional about my recovery and being the healthiest version of myself that I can be. And breaking the generational cycle. So I have I have perspective now, and I have forgiveness, and I feel that I am whole, and I can, and I have spent years of therapy to get to this point, but I can now remember what I have experienced without reliving what I have experienced. Got you. So, so my language is very particular on purpose. Okay. When was the first time that you used? Do you remember what age you were? <clears throat> and that's for any substance, not just alcohol. Yeah, I want to say five or six. Uh, it was a uh, road trip, and I was bored. And important distinction, because, you know, life in the 80s, I remember dad, while driving, handed me a silver can with a big blue bowl on it, which I now know is Schlitz. <laughs> but at the time, I like, the memory sticks out because I thought of Babe the Blue Ox from Paul Bunyan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I... And next thing, we were living in New York on our way to see my grandparents in North Carolina, and I remember... I. Uh, Drank some, didn't like it, woke up in North Carolina. Then not even, a, like, maybe three years later, I think I was eight or nine, maybe, um, on a camping trip with 
uh, my mother, one of her boyfriends, and I uh, fell into a hornet's nest. And their uh, answer, instead of taking me to the uh, hospital, because, you know, that was going to interfere with their good time, because I would have to leave the campsite and everything, uh, the uh, boyfriend gave me uh, two fingers of Jack Daniels. And I remember it went down and immediately came up. So you used um, some liquor or some booze on the way to North Carolina. Do you remember before you passed out how it made you feel? No. No, that that part's not clear. I just remember the silver can with Big Blue Bull. Gotcha. When was the first time where you remember what you felt? Uh, 14... Yeah, I think 14 is the first time I uh, consciously got drunk. And that was because uh, mom was bored and didn't have anybody, didn't have anyone else to drink with. So I was the oldest. So like, oh, yeah, yeah, drinking buddy. And I've always been tall for my age. We were already eye to eye. So, like, I was as large as she was. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. That happened uh, several times throughout high school. That you became her drinking partner. A couple times, yeah. So what were you like when you were high? Or, or drunk, you know, whatever terminology you want to use there. I'm sorry about that. Huh. No, 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 that's, no, that's absolutely accurate. Um, awkward and confused. Um, yeah, that it was, it was just odd most of the time. Um, I have one clear memory that, uh, we had, uh, yeah, I would think I was 14 or 15 and one of the neighbors in the apartment uh, I don't know, she was a girl like a year younger than me. Yeah, that was almost a bad experience because, and that was when I first learned about consent because she was passing out while we were making out. And uh, fortunately, nothing progressed beyond that. However, she was also, like her dad was not in much better shape than my mom was at the time. So she was going somewhat through the same thing as you. Yeah. Did you bond over that? No. No, we did not. Because she was actually not interested in me. Um, my One of my friends was over, and he was, I think, one or two years older than me. Other than that particular drinking experience, because, yeah, my mom's like, oh, yeah, Brett looks like he can handle his liquor. Yeah. Yeah, so we were all drinking, and I remember there was some fallout from that one that her dad found out about it. Oh, yeah, when she went home, like, she lived literally next door in the apartment next door, so staggering drunk to get back to her house. Yeah, I don't remember what what exactly happened after that. Uh, other than that, she was, I don't think she was ever allowed back over. I mean, it makes sense. So from what you're telling me, it sounds like pretty much from the beginning, 
you were drinking to the point of blacking out? Because a lot of people start off having a beer here and there, having a couple shots of liquor, like you said. Maybe their parents give it to them. But it sounds like it might have been different for you that you just went went for the gold, so to speak, and just went diving right into the heavy part. Oh, yeah. That was the example that had been set by my parents that once they started, uh, drinking was over when the bottle was empty or we were out of beer or whatever. That uh, At first, I think it was given to me as a sedative. So I would sleep on car rides and... Then, yeah, once I hit high school, um, like eighth grade, ninth grade, yeah, when I started, like there was no, there was no temperance, there was no balance, like I didn't know. And then once I actually, oh yeah, and then at 18, I joined the Navy and all bets were off. Oh, I can imagine. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, that, um, I cannot speak for all branches of the service. I can speak for my ship that once I made it to the fleet, the alcohol culture was thick and heavy and that it was a test of your metal and your manhood on how you could handle your liquor. And, um, yeah, our, my first port of call overseas was Barnable, Garia in 1995. And I remember seeing uh, one of the uh, first-class petty officers that I looked up to. They got to leave the ship first. Cause, like, the higher rank you were, you got to go on liberty first. So they had been off the boat for about an hour before me and my low-ranked friends were allowed off the boat. Ran into him and his Liberty partner at literally the first place that sold alcohol once we got off the ship. And he was already incoherently drunk and his left sleeve on his dress white uniform was stained from where he had vomited on himself. He had his head down on the table and his body was rocking a little bit side to side as like he had the hiccups or like a mild dry heaving and his liberty partner was sitting there with this like resigned look on his face as he was uh, sipping a cup of espresso and i went wow okay that i'm not i don't want to be like that and then nope <laughs> couple bars later or the, i think the first place that we stopped for a drink that was my introduction to my first high gravity beer and fortunately the guys i was with were actually had my back while looking out for me and stopped me at two what's a high gravity beer um uh, high gravity is uh, this was a uh, zygorta i think it was nine and a half percent whereas a normal beer is five percent alcohol content so it's nearly double. Yeah. So you were in the Navy. Besides that, were you drinking with anyone specifically or just your Navy buddies? Um, it was, well, then um, uh, I met a woman who was also deep in her own substance use. And wow, yeah, that was uh, 
that whole relationship was like a candle burning at both ends. It was fueled on sex, drugs, and drama. Like every weekend was like, it was a throwdown party and we fought all the time and we drank like fish and yeah, it was, oh my God, it was such a hot mess. But then it was always, oh, the makeup session afterwards. Tell us a little bit more about that. <sighs> Give me just a second to think about it. Yeah, take your time. Yeah, because, all right, other than my, um, like, my drinking in high school was intermittent because that really wasn't my, my big thing. Like, I didn't, um, I was afraid of getting caught, and it had been, uh, like, the threat of violence. Like, if uh, I ever got pulled over for a DUI, my stepdad said he was going to beat my ass. Like, one, he would get me out of jail, and two, he was going to beat my ass for it. So I didn't want to, like, be out with other people and drinking because of the fear of having to go home. And uh, the one time I actually tried it, I lied and said I was going to work at my restaurant job. My mom called the restaurant later that night to ask me to pick up a a gallon of milk on the way home. They're like, oh, he's not here. And where I was at a friend's house where I was planning on drinking and then she got me there, like called me there before I got started and just like laid into me. So I was afraid to actually drink too much. Once I got to the Navy, however, again, all bets were off. And this is when I went from being a quote, good kid to experimenting with everything I could get my hands on just about. So the, the relationship and the weekends. Oh my God. Um, we were, uh, mixing and matching different substances, uh, psychedelics, um, specifically acid and alcohol, uh, weed, uh, somebody brought crack to the house one night and that was my hard no, that I was not interested in trying anything that had to be administered through IV or that ran the risk of instant addiction or death. So you did have a little bit of control. Yes. And again, I mean, it was fear-based. What was the reason for that? Did you have an experience with it or something that, like, you know, like you said, for me, I had the same thing where I haven't ever touched anything like crack, crystal meth, heroin, simply for the fact I don't like, I, I would never imagine shooting a needle in my arm myself, but... I said to myself, you'll be dead. I have such an addictive personality. I'm also bipolar, so it's um, balls to the wall with me no matter what I'm doing. And if I was going to do it, I'm, I was going to be the best drug addict possible, and I probably would be dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it, was, it wasn't that I, I recognize now that I was in pain and I was looking for an escape from the pain, but I wasn't, like, full out. Um my mental health issues have been kind of sort of addressed. Like I got a little like school counseling and therapy when I was uh, younger, right after the, the first suicidal attempt or the ideations when I said I was 11. Then when I was 15, my brother was actually uh, committed to a juvenile facility for a while for his mental health issues. 
And I remember being very distraught then. And for a while in high school, my freshman year, I was a cutter. And, like, the substances were great, but they weren't always readily available as, uh, as like, the relief valve. So it wasn't my, my primary thing. Like, my ultimate goal was to stop being in so much pain, but I also didn't have any tools to be able to express, like, what kind of shit I was going through. What were you... So tell us a little bit about cutting yourself. Was that to release, like, some type of high? Um, it was... Or maybe it was a call for help? It was a call for help, and... Now, like, the, the professional language, I recognize it, that it was, an, it was an attempt to be able to exact or to affect change in my life because I was so miserable with what was going on and I felt powerless and then unable to make any type of or unable to create any type of comfort in my surroundings. So the cutting was both uh, I was looking for attention and by being able to actually control something in my life, it gave me a little peace of mind because I could control how much pain I was in. I could control how deep the cut went. I could control all the little aspects of it. And then that also, I, I mean, I set my hair on fire a couple of times in, in class. For, what was the reason then, for that? Wow, I, I, that's something I've never heard of before. Yeah, and it was, again, it mm. was looking for attention because I wasn't getting any kind of support or assistance at home because my mother and stepfather, while still struggling with their sobriety, also were primarily focused on my brother, who had been, uh, we're 14 months apart. And for a lot of our lives, we were raised like uh, twins because we were so close to so close in age and so close in size. So for him to be just gone in the hospital, this big, scary lockdown unit, um, I was just all kinds of distraught all over the place. So my parents' concentration and focus was elsewhere. I was feeling neglected. I was upset. I was abandoned, uh, at least emotionally. So the cutting and the lighting my hair on fire was an attempt to get some type of attention because I didn't, I hadn't yet grasped the difference between positive attention and negative attention. After about the, the one time I let somebody else set my hair on fire, that's when I realized that I was like, getting the wrong kind of attention. I didn't like it anymore. And that's, that's what got me to stop that. So was that something you only did in school or did you go home and do stuff like that with the fire? No. Nah. No, I only did that in school. And also, uh, I didn't, I got out of that because I got into uh, Air Force Junior ROTC in high school. My, I'm fourth generation military. Uh, my father was Air Force, so I wanted to, fucked up as it was, I was trying to emulate my father. I wanted to be like him. I still wanted his seal of approval, even though at that time in our lives, we were estranged. So the cutting was detrimental to my ultimate success that I still was able to dream. And my dream was going to the Air Force Academy. 
or getting an ROTC scholarship to a college and then getting an actual officer's commission. Mm-hmm. And also in part because that was going to show dad up that um, he actually got demoted in rank for failure to complete or he got demoted in rank because of his drinking and then was actually processed out of the Air Force after seven years for failure to complete a uh, alcohol rehab program. So me being able to, like, one-up him and go through officer candidate school, like, that was that was a thing. So that helped me, like, keep the self-destructive tendencies in check. Were you trying to be above him or do better than him to get his attention and, like, you know, please, be, uh, please pay attention to me? Or was it more of a, yeah. screw you, I'm going to be better than you because you're an asshole? No, no, it was the still, there was the, the adoration and the please love me aspect to it. So you were looking to your abuser in a child, that when you were a child and you were looking to him for attention. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we. I've got some family issues where I have my sisters that t- still talk to my dad when he wasn't that great. And I kind of say to them, it's kind of like returning to the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. to relive it when that doesn't make sense. Yeah. I actually, I got it mm. when I was uh, 17 and a senior in high school that I was uh, the executive officer for the, the ROTC unit. So I was second in command. I was the leader of the drill team and we went to an actual drill team competition, which was close to my dad. And he came out with my stepmother and my step-grandmother. And I remember Take your time. How he stood there and cried because he was so proud of me and what I had accomplished. And that that moment, that all-encompassing warmth, that was what I was after. I can yeah. relate. I can definitely relate. So, yeah, I mean, that's something that we, we all just want to be loved deep down inside, no matter what anyone says, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and that's living. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just agreeing with you. I mean, and that's something where, especially some of us who have been abused for some reason, we just want to show that person that maybe we don't deserve it or we didn't deserve it and, you know, look at me. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, our relationship got much better after that, but uh, uh, we did manage to reconnect um and we stayed in touch a little bit. And then when I uh, joined the Navy, he was really proud. He came down for my boot camp graduation. Um, yeah, it was it was great. And then after he had 13 years of sobriety and then started uh, drinking again in 2000. And he had had a... Uh, a work-related accident that ended up with uh, like 18 surgeries on his hands and 
never addressed the reasons behind his desire for substance use. He got hooked on uh, narcotics and uh, passed away from uh, uh, sleep apnea partially induced by lung suppression function from methadone in 2006. Sounds pretty rough. That definitely sounds pretty rough. Yeah, I was not yet 30, and it was the week before Thanksgiving. I remember we uh, we had the ceremony, like we buried him two days before Thanksgiving, so that's still, still, every time Thanksgiving rolls around, that's all I mind. What were you like when you were drunk? Do you remember? Or when you were high? I know you said you were also into psychedelics quite a bit. Do you remember what you were like when you were hanging out with friends and stuff? Were you the cool person? Were you the depressed person? I no, I was I was the life of the party. Because I also, uh, like I had, so alcohol was the first one. But it wasn't the only one. Because I also had a, I had a hernia repair go poorly. And in 2007, I started uh, my slippery slope into narcotics. And um, my spouse and I were talking about this last night, about how uh, um, she absolutely would not have been able to love the man I was then. And uh, like, absolutely, I did not love the man I was then. I was screaming in internal pain and didn't know, and I was constantly trying to add more to fill that hole, to fill that void. So I wanted to feel good. And I remember the, uh, like thinking about alcohol. Like I remember the clear thought that, well, why do people drink? Like it, look what it does to you. Like it, it robs you of your motor control, your motor function, speech. And effectively you're, you're intentionally making yourself helpless or at least in a fight or flight situation, unable to defend yourself so why do this it's like oh it's because when you are able to do it like oh it's friday night let's kick back we're have we're gonna have some beers whatever it's generally a social situation it's not so much the alcohol it's the environment that you're in that you're in a safe space with other people to have a good time and i was trying to force that feeling of safety so even when it wasn't a good time or it wasn't a safe time, I was still pursuing the substances so I could force that feeling of it's all right, it's okay. Gotcha, gotcha. So as far as relationships go, how do yep. things as far as friendships, romantic relationships, how was that? motivated or affected by your your use i am very blessed very fortunate and very grateful for my friends i have uh, multiple friends i've had for 25 plus years um my relationships were a shit show yeah to be blunt about it that i was constantly choosing critical partners i was looking for my mother and someone who would nitpick and berate and demean me when i did the smallest thing wrong so 
I kept choosing people that were like that and then found myself wanting to escape the relationship or go hang out with the guys so I could drink to alleviate the pressure of the relationship that I was miserable in. But I was the one that went and looked for a miserable relationship. Like I was, I remember uh, like, oh my God, I hate the movie Jerry Maguire. Because that line at the end that I remember the big thing about it is like, oh, you complete me. And I took that to heart and that was some whore shit. Like I, I was constantly looking for validation and salvation in my partner so I could find, you know, my other half, my completion, my whatever. I, I could find, you know, the plug to fill the void and not recognizing or trying to make myself whole. So you were kind of looking for your savior. Yeah, my friendships were, my male friendships were great. My relationships with women were horrible. So you never really did anything to um, turn your friends off? Because I know a lot of us have stolen, gotten into fights, maybe just yelled at them or anything like that. So that was nothing that really happened to you, or did it? Uh, And they're just good enough buddies to stick around, possibly. I was a bit of a brash asshole at times uh, when people would first get to know me. Like I've been, I was told multiple times uh, in my early 20s, like, man, when we first met, I thought you were an asshole. And <laughs> it was just getting past that initial, like, I don't know, false bravado or getting past my ego that, I was always trying to be, uh, if I couldn't be the smartest person in the room, I wanted to be the most clever. I wanted to be the wittiest. So that, and I was super, super competitive. So once we got past those aspects, yeah, I was fine. I was great. Then, you know, put a couple drinks into me and I am... I am the life of the party. I'm very uh, charismatic, easygoing, uh, the gift of gab. Like, I can talk to anybody. And, yeah, I did not for, – I'm very fortunate I did not get to the, the point where I was stealing from my friends or um, fighting with my friends. Like, I never actually pushed my friends away because they were my adopted family because my actual – family was so horrible so what what was like your um your employment how was that as far as i know you you lasted in the navy for quite a bit but after that was it hard coming from that environment where everyone was such hard drinkers to maybe coming into the civilian workforce where it wasn't like that or maybe your new job was like that i'm not sure um yeah, that was also a bit of a cluster. I remember being, I was also processed out. Uh, I was discharged from the Navy uh, with a general, general discharge under honorable medical conditions because of uh, suicidal ideations. And I remember being, uh, uh, there was another guy who was actually younger than me. He was only 20, and he was being processed out due to uh, failure to complete alcohol rehab. So, yeah, like the Navy didn't do us any favors. 
I was diagnosed uh, borderline personality disorder narcissist with, and then not given any type of follow-up psychiatric care. Um, there's this thing called TAPS, which is uh, transition assistance. Oh, crap. It's a series of classes you take whenever you're being, you're moving from military to civilian life and tell you all the civilian benefits you can apply for, like unemployment and all that. I had no idea any of that existed. My ship screwed me, and I got to take the last class on the last day of a two-week course. So I was effectively just set loose on the world without any uh, support network, safety net, or anything. So I moved back home. What were the major changes? Because a lot of people obviously weren't in the military. So what were the major changes going from the life of service to the life of a civilian? Was there anything within that, like added stress or anything where you maybe possibly start drinking more? Or do you, did you find yourself drinking less? Uh, there for a while, it was less. Like the toxic, I got out of the toxic relationship and uh, moved home. There was some support because I was now viewed as a man. I've been halfway around the world and back. Um, so my family's view of me was different. Uh, my brother was still struggling. And when my mother threw him out uh, after catching him smoking a joint on the back porch, I immediately jumped into action because, oh, yeah, uh, massive, massive hero complex because I was so because I never had a hero like I always I, I needed someone to save me. So I adapted and I have a huge hero complex so I can save other people so they don't go through what I did. So when my brother was suddenly about to be homeless, I bam, jumped into action. I found us an apartment and then we got us a roommate. The three of us moved in together and we had this like super awful <laughs> bachelor pad where I was right back into what I had been doing in the Navy where it was the weekend benders. So I was effectively a functioning alcoholic that through the week working, I was all right. But then once it was off time weekend, it because that was also the example that had been demonstrated for me by my parents. So once those weekends came around, it was off to the races for you. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, my God. Yeah, we had one 4th of July where we had this uh, uh, balcony, and we set out to line the balcony with uh, empty cans and bottles. And, yeah, we got, like, 10 feet done. The bottles, everything standing up just next to each other. It, it was, fortunately, it wasn't just us. I mean, but we had a party. Yeah, but every weekend, I mean, it was three dudes living there. So, yeah, we had a, a party every weekend. All of us were looking for girlfriends or just to get laid. It was, yeah. Clumsy attempted debauchery. That's a good way to put it. never heard that before. So, during all this, what is your mental health like? Do you have any things? I know you mentioned borderline personality disorder and stuff like that. Um, how did that affect your drinking, you think? Did it tie in at any point? Yes. Yes. 
uh, when I was 23, I recognized that something was off and that's when I sought help and, uh, got myself on SSRIs. So uh, I got myself on maintenance medication, um, cause I wanted, cause I was recognizing I was swinging so far. I didn't want, like, I still wanted to be able to feel, but I wanted something to take the, the edge off so it wasn't such a drastic swing just something that helped me keep an even keel and i intermittently had therapy uh through my 20s it, i really got serious about it or i got more serious about it once i had my uh, chronic condition from the, the botched hernia in 2012 that's when i started seeing a therapist regularly Real quick, and for those who don't know, SSRIs are antidepressants. I just wanted yes. to say that a lot of people may not know what that is. So those are a, a certain type of antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Now, also, like there is an amazing silver lining that I am very happy about who I am now and the work that I have put into myself. And I stopped taking the antidepressants uh, two years ago. Like I am completely substance free. That's a great step. That may not be the easiest yeah. step either. What made you make that decision to get off of them? Uh, it was uh, on the way to the hospital after my overdose that I, I got there. And so with antidepressants, there is a uh, one of the rare but serious side effects is something called serotonin syndrome, where you will literally die of happiness. Uh, the drugs start, you just start producing too much serotonin and the it will flood your brain and also it, it it sounds nifty but it's really not because there are a lot of physical side effects that come with it um, when i got to the hospital it had just started and my initial plan was i didn't want i didn't want to be rude because i was staying with friends um i didn't want one of their boys to find me the next morning. So that's when I told them what I had done. And my plan was to get out of the house, to go to the hospital. And then once my friend drove off, I was just going to sit outside until I felt it was too late. Well, they sat there. So I actually walked inside and the serotonin syndrome started. So I'm like, Hey, here's my veteran ID card. This was the VA hospital. And I have, this is what I have done. And I was very compliant. I was very happy. And then the actual nausea and the physical side effects started. Um, I drank. I remember them handing me a paper cup, like, here, drink this. I took a sip, like, oh, my God, it's awful. What is it? Charcoal. Drink it. Okay. And I I believe I was able to choke down, like, uh, 30 grams of of activated charcoal to help uh, bind with the... uh, effectively the poison in my stomach. And then also, I uh, remember throwing out most of it. But it's still 36 hours in the ER and then eight days in the psych ward after that. However, the important part was that I chose to live. Like, I remember that being an actual conscious decision. And then uh, working through more stuff while I was in inpatient. And... Yeah, it's like I, I initially my thought process was I'm 42, I've seen enough, I'm done, I'm gonna check out, I'm 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 done with this, I want to see what's next, and no, 
like uh, why i why give up why not see what i can do with this experience now and i have gone from um hopeless that was the big thing i didn't have any hope and i've found and married my fool i found and married my life partner we have started a business together uh i have literally dream i'm literally living a life i did not have the courage to dream was possible previously like i i it's i i can use the analogy of you know 180 degree turnaround or night and day and that still doesn't that doesn't do it justice for what i for like the difference in my quality of life now because i chose to actually address my feelings of why i was feeling unsafe what was driving me towards the substances either alcohol uh, narcotics or uh, and from 2017 through uh up until june of this year i was using weed as primary uh, pain management because of my opioid use so i'm a hard no on the opioids and then in june of this year i recognized that my weed usage was affecting my memory i missed like i completely forgot my best friend's 50th birthday i gave away a prized coffee cup apparently with like great pomp and circumstance then spent like three days searching for it and near panic like okay i'm done this is now problematic i was able to put it down and all because i chose to do the work on myself and why i felt unworthy so I was going to say, tell us a little bit more about your recovery and how you got out of the depths of addiction. Um, I had help. And that was a big thing. I had a support network. Uh, I would like to say that the pillars of my recovery are uh, cognitive behavior therapy, being able to just replace and rephrase key words in my thinking. Uh, I stopped using absolutes like always and never. I replaced it with currently. I learned how to use I statements, like I am experiencing this versus you make me feel. Um, I was able to, uh, there's something called a wrap, which is wellness recovery action plan that has been instrumental like i have one filled out now and i updated every six months uh that's like what i look like when i'm feeling fine what i look like when i start to experience crisis what i look like when i'm in crisis and then here is who to call and who i need to do what when i am in crisis up until actually being if i need to be uh readmitted to the hospital uh, the big one which um, I feel, at least in my case, I had to work up to it. There's a, a particular trauma therapy called EMDR, which is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. When I first got out of the hospital, I asked for it, and I was told, no, you are not strong enough. You are not mentally stable enough to handle this particular therapy right now. Mm, pardon me. And... That one, I still practice EMDR. Um, 
that has been absolutely massive in my recovery and being able to go back and re- remember an experience without reliving the experience and reframing my thinking and reinforcing the positive beliefs and thoughts about myself. So it looks like you've really had a plan of action because a lot of people don't. They say they want to get sober. They say they want their mental health to get better, but they don't know how about going to do that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was very lucky that in this case, uh, the VA did step up because it is a bit of a a crisis that on average are 22 veteran suicides a day. So they once, once I was pinged on their radar, like, Hey, I am in crisis. They have been like, I still get a periodic reach out from the VA. Like, Hey, just reaching out, make sure you're okay. Here's some resources available if you need it. And I am also still actively like, uh, I just got a new therapist because, uh, mine retired. And I'm still doing the EMDR therapy every three weeks. So there is, you know, a program that you maintain. Yes. Yes. Creating the structure is absolutely huge. So tell us a little bit what life is like nowadays. Like, <laughs> uh, I guess I hit on a nerve there. That's My good. life is epic. Epic. Describe. Please elaborate. Epic. I, wow. Um, so in my, in my substance use and with my chronic conditions, like I have uh, nerve damage that required a uh, spinal cord stimulator to be inserted in 2019. And I have degeneration in three discs. Um, and the degeneration was brought about by massive weight for a long period of time that uh, I was over 270 pounds for more than a decade. At one point, I reached uh, 320 pounds, and now I am literally back down to my enlistment weight when I was 18. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, it- like that's the, the men's health coaching that I do now that – yeah, so I've been able to take my lived experiences of dropping 120 pounds. I help other men with life-threatening weight issues lose their weight. So being able to literally use my trauma and pain as a way to connect with other men to help them re- effectively regain control of their lives and be intentional about their living. Well, I mentioned uh, I mentioned this all the time that a lot of us, the second we quote unquote get sober, we're really not because we just switch our addiction. And food is a big one because you don't uh-huh. ha- you, you don't need uh, alcohol to live, but you need food to live. There's no way about it. There's no saying let me let me try and get around this. You have to eat, and it's a real hard thing to do for us addicts. I believe I've mentioned that a oh. few times. Oh yeah, absolutely. That. Uh... Uh, food is uh, one of the easiest uh, easiest ways to influence our dopamine. Yep. And yeah. So, but uh, to Epic, yeah. Last night, uh, as an example, I went out in a costume that initially I was a little self conscious about. I went as a, a white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland. I've got one of those like mat, like massive uh, stuffed heads, like you find at Walmart. Yeah. And I was 
I was a little awkward about it. And then the very first child that I saw looked at me with her mouth just like, oh, wide open. And it was that sheer wonderment. I'm like, all right, this has been worth it. I had people stopping to ask, if, uh, stopping me to ask if they could take a picture with me, um, which previously in my substance use, I, I didn't have that level of self-confidence. That made me feel weird. Um, I go to uh, festivals with and uh, and help people with harm reduction, uh, educating other people on like what they are doing to their bodies and if they're going to choose to do a substance, at least how to minimize the damage to themselves. And yeah, that uh, the, I guess the the core of how epic my life is is being really centered in my self-worth and knowing that I am, I am a complete and whole person. Well, it sounds like you do a lot of 12 step work that really you're giving back, you're helping people. And at the same time, you're helping yourself to stay sober. Uh, uh, yes and no on that one, but, uh, personally, I am not a fan of the 12 step program. I find that, uh, in my experience, it has been, uh, at least watching what my parents went through in the meetings I attended. And I went to a couple Al-Anon meetings when I was a kid. Uh, it was like a shame culture, like all of the work that you could put into it. Like you could be sober forever and then you have one drink and oh, no, all of that's gone. So I prefer a smart recovery where instead of having a relapse, which that particular word has so much baggage and so much judgment attached to it, using the swapping that out, with the term return to use, whereas you can have a slip, you can have a moment of weakness and it doesn't negate all of the progress that you have made up until that point. Well, that's the thing. And I'll send you over a copy. So we do have 12 steps for Addict Anonymous, but it's not about giving up your power. It's not about, so we actually, in the meetings, you know, a lot of people might state their recovery time and clean time. So I think those are two separate aspects. So to me, to minimize what you're saying, your recovery time is from the first time you ever decided to get sober and your clean yes. and your clean time is from the last time you used. So yes. someone could say, okay, I'm in recovery for five years and my clean time is 45 days. So that's something yeah. that I definitely took into consideration. Another thing we did was we took the words higher power out and God only because I wanted it to be open to more people. You can still work the 12 steps religiously if you want. Ours are written about finding inner strength and courage. But I've, instead of this becoming a sales pitch for Addicts Anonymous, I'll definitely send you a, a copy later on. And you give me some feedback on what you think about it. Yeah, excellent. Look forward to it. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to wrap up. I think you've given us a lot of information. I really, really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me this morning. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. And this has been very cathartic. Yeah, I hear that a lot also because it's, it's, I'm, I'm not a therapist, but no matter what, I, you can just have someone that listens. And that's part of the beauty of recovery is just finding someone to listen to you. Mm-hmm. All right, folks. So if you like what you heard today... Go out and give us a rating on iTunes. Also check out the Addicts Anonymous Facebook group. And if you go there to our events tab, you can see that we do weekly meetings, or I should say almost daily meetings every day. And that is all we have for today. So until next time.